0: Hi, welcome back to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. This week, we're looking at right-wing news and what it means for journalism. We're looking at the surprising return of print, and finally, the new dominance of foreign news outlets, which have managed more than their share of scoops about the Trump transition. This week, taking the reins of The Kicker is Vanessa Ghazzari, managing editor of CJR. Hello, Vanessa.
1: Thanks, Kyle. My name is Vanessa Ghazari, and as Kyle mentioned, I'm going to be uh, leading this podcast today, the, the kicker from CJR. I'm filling in for Dave Uberti, who's out of town this week, and I have two guests with me right now, uh, Nausicaa Renner, who is CJR's Tau Editor. Hi, Nausicaa. Hi, Vanessa. And Shelley Hepworth, uh, one of CJR's Delacorte Fellows. Hello. Hi, Shelley. Um, the first thing we're going to be talking about today, as, as Kyle mentioned, is sort of what's going on in the realm of right-wing news since the election. This has become uh, an issue of great interest and concern to the so-called mainstream press, which uh, is feeling guilty for having missed a lot of, a lot of stories. Um, and also <laughs> sort of just what's being said in these, um, what we've come to call... Uh, filter bubbles we have our own they have theirs and there are all sorts of people who are trying to now um, open themselves up to these new voices in various ways and Shelley's been working on a story about that for CJR's website which we hope will publish sometime later this week Mm -hmm. and uh, she was just gonna tell us a little bit today about about what she's found out
2: yeah, I guess after we did the election oral history, I kind of noticed that people were talking about this idea of being stuck in a filter bubble. And some people were saying that they felt that there was a need to reach out to the other side and understand where, where they were coming from. Um, so I spoke to uh, Will Soma, who's a campaign editor at The Hill. And he writes like a newsletter called Write Richter that basically gives readers a rundown of what's happening in the conservative news sphere. Um, there's a journalist, James West, who works at Mother Jones, and he decided to add all the Trump supporters that he interviewed during the campaign to his Facebook page to try and like bubble up some different points of view. And I also spoke to Ken Stern, who is the former CEO of NPR. Um, he spent the past year engaging with conservative views, trying to figure out why there seems to be more animosity now, even though there may not be, um, well, he says that the Data shows that there's not necessarily more disagreement, but maybe just more animosity. Yeah.
3: I was really curious actually when you were talking about Wright Richter because um, you were saying that so he used to be super conservative and then he sort of became less conservative, but still th- thinks of himself as kind of a translator for that world to liberals. And I feel like that that's similar to what you were saying, Vanessa post-election in terms of like what the job of journalists is and if if journalists have like a thick enough skin to go to places where and listen to arguments that they really disagree with and then translate those and put them in context
1: i think that there is one school of thought um, that you know, every point of view has equal merit. And there's another that really, as journalists, we're supposed to be making distinctions between, you know, somebody who's making an intelligent, well-reasoned argument and somebody who's perhaps just spouting um, some retrograde um, hate speech, which I'm certainly not saying that all uh, of the right wing uh, news organizations or all, you know, all supporters of that movement are, but there there are those among them. Um, and I'm, I've been really struggling with this myself. Do, do you feel like you have any sense of, of where the press is going
2: in, in this regard? I mean, there just seems to be a division to some degree. Um, I feel like there's a question between, yeah, there's definitely some people who are saying that you need to have a strong standpoint and we don't want to be normalizing things. Um, but I guess there's a question of whether you can still have that strong viewpoint and know where you stand on things but still engage with the other side so that you do have more of an understanding about what's going on. One of the things that Ken Stern mentioned when I spoke to him was that it doesn't really help anyone to pretend that it's not, it doesn't exist, even if it's not rooted in fact, that these things aren't being said.
1: Nausicaa, you've been doing something interesting uh, recently, which I'd love for you to tell our listeners about, um, <laughs> involving Gab. This, uh, I guess is sort of a, a, a walled garden of a social network for... Right. for the right wing, or maybe for just for anybody.
3: Um, yes, Gab is a social network. It's kind of like a mixture between Twitter and Reddit, so you can follow people and people can follow you, but there's also the system of upvoting, like on Reddit. Um, and it has about, the New York Times reported it has about 100,000 users right now. There are over a million people on the waiting list. It started in August, and um, I think it's a pretty good example of something where um, the right wing clearly understands how to get the media's attention and there's nothing more compelling than like this closed social network where all of this like right wing speech is going on and we can't see it um but lucky for me i uh, i was able to borrow a login from someone and i spent a couple hours yesterday exploring the site and it, it's really interesting. There's there's not a lot going on there. Um, <laughs> the hashtags that were trending um, were like "Make America Great Again," um, their own sort of personal ha- or the Gabs' own like trademark hashtag, which is hashtag Speak Freely, because it's all about having a space to um, for free speech and where people won't get banned. Um, all of the hashtags that were trending were the same ones that were trending according to you know, Bright and, and the New York Times like two months ago. So there's not a lot of action going on. I think it's been reported and I think this is pretty correct that um, Gab is not necessarily supposed to be active right now, it's more of like a safe space for people to go when they get kicked off of places like Twitter. Um so for instance Milo Yiannopoulos had the most followers of anyone that I saw he had 29,000 followers not a huge number but about a third of the users who are on Gab I guess follow Milo.
1: Um, who has, by the way been kicked off of Twitter oh, yes. permanently,
3: right? Mm-hmm. He's been banned from Twitter. So I don't know, I think it's I think it's a little bit of hype and I think it, we have to be aware of of how the right wing is is leading us around.
1: Yeah, I was reading a piece in BuzzFeed uh, from a few months ago about Gab, and there was a quote from the guy who started it saying, uh, what makes the entirely left-leaning big social monopoly qualified to tell us what is news, what is trending, to define what harassment means? Uh, He says, it didn't feel right to me, and I wanted to change it and give people something that would be fair and just. And, And I read also in that piece that the way Gab determines trending is through upvotes. So so I, I'm guessing there's maybe a more democratic a more strictly democratic process for determining what gets seen more or what has a higher rating rather than some big faceless social network controller describe uh, or deciding rather what what should be trending or popular.
3: Yeah, I think it's definitely more democratic than say Facebook, but it's probably about as democratic as Twitter. Um, in terms of what you end up seeing, um, or or as Reddit, which it's modeled after. I think the real difference is that they basically have promised not to suspend people. Um, I think uh, there was one instance of Andrew Arnheimer, a.k.a. Weave, actually uh, eliciting... Uh, a, an edit from Gab on his bio because it was too anti-Semitic but that's the only instance that I've heard of people limiting speech. On the other hand there actually is a function on the site called hashtag speaknoevil that allows you to mute certain users and mute words. So it's not a total free for all. You have some control as a user as to what you see but again I think you can't really assess how democratic it is until people are actually using it and, and a lot of the posts have like Zero to one upvotes, so and there's not a lot of back and forth that I'm seeing right now on the
1: site. You just mentioned something really interesting when you were when you were talking about Gab as as it being a safe space for conservatives or people yeah. who are, you know, pro Trump or whatever, and. Um, you know, these are people who hate the idea of a safe space, at least, you know, ostensibly.
3: I mean, I think I think it works off of a very limited view of the First Amendment because it's supposedly based around free speech. It totally ignores the fact that free speech is not just about the right to speak, but the right that others can speak. It's you know, it has a very small user base um, and it. You know, like CNN tried to get an interview with them. I guess CNN kind of blew off a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and now, get the the communications people at Gab are basically saying, "We will never give an interview to CNN, that fake news site." Like, so it, it they're very they're they're cherry picking what they see as the First Amendment, in my opinion.
2: I'm curious about whether. If this is sort of um, has a reputation for being a place a safe space for conservative news or right wing news, that now we're sort of going to see a splintering of social platforms into like a right left division that will create more of a filter bubble.
3: I think it's really hard to replace Facebook. I think or to replace Twitter. They have the advantage of being the first ones, and that's where everybody goes. And it's like my. Fingers have a reflex that takes me to Facebook.com. I think it would be—it's very hard to change that kind of thing. I think it's possible. I think it will happen more if Twitter and Facebook, particularly Twitter, more systematically get rid of people who hold certain views.
1: Something that I've been thinking about a lot as we think about how to cover these these communities—some of. Uh, You know, some of some of whose members have very legitimate things to say um, that may be of political value and others are, you know, sort of spewing hate speech and things that are not particularly valuable um, is sort of like where we stand and and whether how how to morally go about covering people uh, in these worlds. So I have been reading lately some of the work that Masha Gessen has been doing um, for the New York Review of Books. And I have found a couple of her pieces really interesting. Actually, she wrote a piece on sort of rules for dealing with autocrats that was much quoted and read. And there, there was another one she wrote that was more about moral compromise that, to me, was even more powerful as I think about what the media's role is now. Um, and the, and there's a part of that. She so she talks about the the Judenrat in the ghettos in. Germany and other parts of not Nazi-occupied Europe um, in the 40s, the 30s and 40s, and how they sort of decided that this was the best way to go because they were the ones who were running the show in the the Jewish communities, and they were collaborating with the Nazis. But they felt that they could do more to protect those communities by collaborating than by outright uh, resisting. And and of course, you know, as the press, we're in a we're in a different situation. We're not. Uh, We're not civil servants, but there's something that that Gessen wrote in that piece that I thought was really just worth noting. Um, She said, we cannot know for certain any more than we can know now whether a scorched earth strategy or the strategy of compromise would more effectively mitigate Trumpism. That is, we cannot know for certain whether these were the right choices that these people made. Um, But that does not mean that a choice, the right choice, is impossible. It only means that we are asking the wrong question. And I I sort of asked this before. But I wonder if if either of you have any thoughts about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I also think that I am suspicious of any any mandate that we have the right answer or, or like purity of action because I think like that in the end prevents people from going out and doing the work. And I would rather have, you know, journalists go out there and just like, jerry-rig something and get and and work through it and revise themselves and you know work in drafts rather than having to make a really calculated
1: ideological decision and
3: then going out
1: okay great Thank thanks <laughs> to you both so much we <laughs> thanks, have, Vanessa. we're gonna wind this one down and get ready for the the next topic I'm excited to be joined today by uh, Mike Rosenwald, who is on the enterprise staff of the Washington Post. He um, has been a finalist for a National Magazine Award. He's written for The New Yorker, The Economist, and CJR, of course, all sorts of other great places as well. And he has a really terrific piece in our most recent print edition, which is on innovation in journalism. And um, Mike, Mike's piece is not necessarily... What you might think of at first as the most innovative topic, it's really it's the, the headline is print is dead, long live print. And it's about the surprising resurgence of of print, particularly newspapers, but in other forms as well. Hello, Mike.
0: Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yes, I'm very glad that you're here. Thank you for being on The Kicker. It is a a new effort for us, and we're excited to talk about your piece, which is up online on CJR's website right now. Um, So there's a lot to talk about here, and I think we're going to get into some really interesting numbers for one thing, which I I found kind of shocking as I was editing this piece. But the first thing I wanted to ask you about was a quote that you have sort of late in the piece. Um, You write... That that Thomas Jefferson once wrote, the cornerstone of democracy rests on the foundation of an educated electorate. But how educated can a society of skimmers really be? This is this is sort of your question about, and you can you know I invite you to talk about this a little bit more about the way people read differently in print versus digitally. But in the wake of this most recent uh, crazy presidential election that has left many journalists scratching their heads. Um, this seemed this had a certain extra resonance for me as I was reading it, you know, just in the last couple of days, and I, I wondered if you can talk a little bit about about why you use that quote and and what you think it tells us about, you know, the 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 relative merits of print uh, news versus digital news.
0: Great question, um, and and it also had a lot of uh, a resonance for me, particularly uh, here in the D.C. area. We had this sort of crazy. Incident in the last uh, couple days at a at a pizza place um, next to Politics and Prose that uh, there had been a lot of you know fake news about and conspiracy theories over you know alleged child sex rings and whatnot uh, and and the guy came there you know armed uh, you know over the weekend and um, uh, thought he was going to investigate it um, uh, himself and so uh, so so that got me thinking about it as well you know what's interesting is that you know um... you know when people read online they tend to sort of their eyes jump around and and you know the people of you know people smarter than me have studied this and so they jump around um, they skim they don't necessarily stay very long on an article um, they don't even really they don't even really look at the source even um, very much uh... it's it's all about clicking on headlines and clicking on pictures that sort of uh... bring you into a, a piece um and so you know that in itself is a is a big problem i think for for mainstream media organizations because you have these sort of drive-by readers you know who come and they they read the first few paragraphs and um and then they go away and you know or something else is blinking at them telling them to read that um and so what you have is is a like you know we, we we're a society of skimmers um but in print it's different print people are much more immersive in the way they read. Um, they read things, um, you know, in a linear way rather than sort of jumping around. And the other thing that print has going for it is that, uh, particularly in the in the case of, of fake news and whatnot, uh, is that it has a sort of barrier to entry, which is that, um, you know, the, the you know crazy people, you know, who want to spread fake news can 't you know go out and buy a you know a printing plan and, and do all that sort of stuff, and you know there 's been propaganda and you know Nazi propaganda and all this sort of stuff over the years but 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 generally speaking you didn 't see a lot of real you know mainstream fake news uh, uh, you know before digital because you know there was this barrier to entry which was which was print um, so not only do you have this issue where people are reading less um, uh, you know less intensely than they did before, um, but but now that and, and 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 but now there are websites that look that look real and people don't either a look close enough to see what's real or b um, um, they don't really they don't really care because they're just they're just sort of jumping around and you click a button and you share it and the next thing you know somebody else is doing the same thing and these things spread. The data shows that we spend more time you know reading in print than we do in in in, in digital and we read more immersively. Um, and so all these things are kind of coming together now.
1: And another really interesting thing that your story h- touched on with um, you know one of the researchers you talked to was was that, I mean just as you say that that you know we've all sort of moved in the direction of digital and and you know to some degree raced in that direction you know over the last let's say 15, 20 years and particularly newspapers but all media and yet now we're finding that this isn't really where people want to get their news or or it's not where they're getting their news right which is rather surprising
0: well we we know that when people go to news sites they don't stay very long they stay under 5 minutes if that uh so that's not a long time to get you know uh, the complicated you know world events uh in um but and we know that they spend more time when they when they're actually reading it, um in print you know the problem is that uh uh, you know we've we've kind of told people that print is you know this kind of afterthought um and we're telling people that you know we're training people to think that you have to get your news online it's the latest and greatest you know we can we can be immersive and do all these things and, and you know you know wear three d goggles or, or or whatever um uh and so you know we're kind of trained we've kind of trained the market to to assume that that's how you should get your news deeply these days. Um, and, and the fact is, we're just not. Even, even young people aren't, right? Yeah, that was the most striking thing to me in doing this research, is that if you give young people the opportunity to read print newspapers and put them in front of them, they prefer them um, to, to uh, you know, the digital news. And, and by and large, millennials in particular are not even really reading mainstream news online anyway. And then, on, you know, on a college campus is just sort of, ex, you know, expanding on that idea. Um, you know, students prefer to read uh, print textbooks versus digital. You know, they they, they don't want to be disrupted. They they understand that it's hard for them to concentrate. And they, they, they know that they read deeper in print and that they can do more things with print in terms of highlighting and taking notes than than they can online.
1: Why do you think that, you know, the media writ large has been so unwilling to sort of see this writing on the wall so to speak i mean there's a great part of your story where you talk about uh this researcher iris chi i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right but yep yep you got it um she did some research uh for a newspaper association showing that you know digital is not necessarily the best way for uh, newspapers to go and that actually they might do better to put more resources uh, into their print editions, many of which are folding. Um, and ba- basically, the Newspaper Association didn't want to share this with its members because it sort of went against the conventional wisdom. I, I mean, I found this really extraordinary. You know, like talk about uh, a vast right wing conspiracy, it's like a vast within the media conspiracy to uh, to kill itself, uh,
0: (laughs) potentially. So what, why is that happening? So, so that, I, I, I think about that all the time. Um, and, and that's kind of what got me thinking about doing this piece in general. So, um, you know, in economics, there's something called sunk costs, which is this idea that, you know, um, you know, you've been standing in line for a long time and, um, you may as well just stand in line, you know, because you're, because you've been in line all the time, you know, um, in journalism, you know, it goes way back. So you know, before there was the internet, newspaper owners had a monopoly. Um, they they pr- basically printed money, right? I mean, there was re- you know really not a lot of places to do to reach people. Uh, you know, in, from an advertising sense, even with TV and radio, newspapers were printing money. I mean, I arrived at the Washington Post you know twelve thirteen years ago, and 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 the paper was printing money. The papers, you know the there's a reason Warren Buffett was one of its largest uh, shareholders. I mean, he he's not stupid. He knows a monopoly when he sees one. So but when the internet came came along, obviously that blows up, you know, that th- that blows up the monopoly. And now suddenly there's other places to advertise. So newspaper owners, you know, God bless them, were not the, 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 the they weren't the most brilliant business owners in the world. All they really had to do was print this thing. And then they would print money. There was there wasn't much, there wasn't much business, you know, acumen in, in, involved. Well, now they were presented with sort of this thing, this great new thing that everybody was talking about. That was very, you know, popular. There was American on, there was America Online. People were getting these discs in the mail. People were like talking with each other, and and, and there was, you know, everybody said, oh well, this is where this is where it's all going to go. And they all thought that, and they all did that, but without realizing that when they when they did that particularly without charging um they they were disrupting themselves in the worst possible way they were they they were losing their moat they were losing that that sort of barrier to entry and and so when that happened um it was just kind of a you know it was it was, it was a follow the leader kind of thing you know one person one guy did it the other guy had to do it you know and and before long everybody was sort of racing to be part of this this new thing online without really thinking about the, the consequences of, and without really thinking about, you know, trying to replicate the, the, the economics uh, of, of print online.
1: Just in the little bit of time we have left, you mentioned something really interesting just to go back to the first thing we talked about that I hadn't thought about, which is that print puts sort of establishes a barrier to fake news. And you know we've talked a lot about fake news uh, in during this election campaign and in the aftermath as well, but you know we really haven't talked about this idea that people just really aren't reading the news. I mean I'm struck by how much good reporting was done during the uh, election run-up, and it's it just seemed as if people I spoke to who weren't journalists hadn't read these stories and. I just wonder if that has something to do with people not getting their news in print, do you think, based on what you've, you know, the reporting that you've done?
0: Well, they're, they're, people are overwhelmed by by the amount of information that's sort of coming at them, and they have no way of knowing what's important, what's been reported before, what's real, what's fake. I mean, and, and it, you sort of, it, you know, it's kind of like, you know, um, when you're going shopping for, you know, a pair of shoes and there's so many options you're, you're just like ah, I'm just going to grab these or whatever. Um you are you're, you're overwhelmed by choice. You're, you and and you have no like I said, you have no idea what's 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 good or bad or or or, or whatever. It all, you know, if, if 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 we're getting all all of our information from Facebook, it's all Facebook's presenting it all the same way, you know, something from Fly by Night you know, com and the Washington Post or the new york times or whatever uh, you know or the, the it looks the same in your facebook feed no matter where it's coming from and i have friends who work in the government who send me things all the time and they say is this real is this a real site can you tell me if this is a real site before i respond to this person who send it Who send it to me right these are educated people um so so it's not that it's you, you know it's not that they're pulling one over on 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 you know sort of the less sophisticated i mean everybody is kind of confused um but but Print, print had that immediacy, not just of of uh, well, it had the immediacy of, of 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 you knowing whether it was it was real or not.
1: Yeah, I, I really think that's super thought provoking, and I I'm so glad that you brought it up because it's not that's sort of one of the things that comes out of your piece, and I hope people will read it. It's called "Print Is Dead, Long Live Print," by Mike Rosenwald. It's on ctr.org dot uh, org right now. And it's in our print edition, which is on newsstands. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great.
0: Thank you for having me. It's, it's a fascinating topic, and, and I think you guys have really been sort of all over this, uh, this, this, this fake news environment and, and what it means. So it's, it's good to be a part of the conversation.
1: Welcome back to The Kicker. I'm here again with Shelley Hepworth, Hi. one of CGR's Delacorte fellows. And we're going to be talking about a really interesting phenomenon that's been going on recently, um, which is that as, as President-elect Trump uh, begins talking with foreign leaders or taking their calls in the run-up to his uh, entering office, we are getting reports of conversations that are happening between him and these, these leaders but not from the State Department or from his transition team or even many cases from Trump himself. We're getting them from foreign sources, so either foreign governments or foreign news organizations. It's one of the ways that the US media is left playing catch up. And so I just wanted to open it to you, Shelley, and and, I mean, this is a
2: broad topic, but we've been much in the news in the last couple weeks. Um, Yeah, basically going back and looking at all the news reports about these uh, phone calls that Trump's been having and just seeing what the sources were. And a lot of them, the sources came from readouts from foreign leaders. So countries like Kazakhstan, the Philippines, Egypt, Russia, Pakistan, and Argentina as well that the source was the the foreign leader, not Trump.
1: I mean, it occurred to me there's a a wonderful piece in the New York Times today. That's a a photo multimedia piece um, on Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte's anti-drug campaign. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly because I have no idea what uh, the Philippine language sounds like. In any case, this anti-drug campaign that he's been running in which at least... 2,000 people have been killed by police so far. And in some cases, some estimates I've read, the numbers are much higher than that. Uh, and basically, he told the cops to, you know, just, um, you know, arrest or 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 kill anyone who was believed to be selling or using drugs, I think. And um, so, so Trump had a call with him last week. According to the Philippine president, Trump praised him um, for this, you know, uh, rather violent campaign and and basically said you're doing it the right way. Yeah. And the entire basis of the New York Times story about this call was the statements of the Philippine president about it. It, it sort of said, you know, the transition team couldn't be reached for comment and there was no immediate response from Trump.
2: Yeah, I think um, especially in the case of the Philippines, he hasn't confirmed whether he said that or not. So... I mean, we don't know. How unusual is this and what are the consequences of it? I'm not sure how unusual it is. I went back and um, had a look at Obama's transition to see what sort of um, information was being released by his transition team about the foreign calls that he was making. And I, I don't know that he was, also, that he was releasing um, readouts of those calls either. I guess usually they didn't generate the, the amount of news that Trump's calls seemed to be generating. Um, but there was an incident uh, where Obama spoke to the president of Poland and there was some sort of discrepancy between what he was saying happened and what Obama was saying happened. I guess what I'm curious about is how, like, how this sort of allows um, foreign leaders to shape the conversation around what's happening and what, what's going on in these conversations. And I yeah, I guess I'm curious about what the long term implications of that might be. One thing that occurs to me
1: is that it's it's a way for Trump to even further undercut the authority of the u s media in a funny way by not speaking about these calls himself or by not giving sort of an official American account of the of the calls or of the conversations he's he's telling the the, the u s media as he has been for months to you know frankly, go screw yourself because you are not going to get
2: anything from us and you're just going to have to run around and take whatever these other folks say. Yeah, I guess like it, it is a challenge for the U.S. media about how they're going to deal with this and it's also a question about whether this is going to continue once he is inaugurated. I spoke to Lucy Hornby, who's the Beijing correspondent for the Financial Times, and I was basically just asking her about or if she has any wisdom for people who are dealing with a Trump presidency that might not be as transparent as uh, Obama has been or previous presidents have been. And she was saying that maybe a good dose of distance and skepticism could prove to be a healthy thing. I think that actually, first of all, it should be noted
1: that the Obama administration has not been a model of transparency. Secondly, every government statement, be it from the government of Pakistan or the government of the Philippines or the government of the United States, is a political event, right? It's a... To some degree or another, it's a propaganda statement.
2: Yeah. What's What's you? You've been you've done some foreign reporting. What What is your experience of being of that?
1: Well, I think what strikes me here is that normally we at least have two accounts to compare against each other. And what we, you know, I don't know if this will change when Trump takes office. I think probably it will because there are organs of government like the State Department, which are in the business of producing these readouts and and transcripts of the calls. And I don't think that will necessarily stop. Um, you know, the transition is a different kind of, you know, liminal time. And so I don't want to make too many um, statements just based on that. But I do think that when you have two accounts of the conversation um, or you have a transcript, even if you have a transcript that's produced by one side, it gives it a little more of a feeling that you have multiple sources. I do think that if you only have one source, even if it's the U.S. government's account of the conversation and, you know, the government of Taiwan doesn't say anything about it or the government of the Philippines doesn't say anything about it, that you, you know, you have to be very skeptical. It's like anything where you only have one source. Mm. Shelly, thank you so much for being with me. It was a lot of fun, and we're going to sign off. Thanks again for listening to The Kicker of podcast.